We are so excited to announce that we're going to be running a new motherhood support group. Starting September 8th, Sina and I will be leading a 10-part group to help reduce stress and cope with the challenges of new motherhood. This workshop offers new moms with babies from zero to one weekly group sessions that cover issues such as body image, the impact of motherhood on relationships and identity, mindful parenting, and self-care. The new motherhood support group will provide a space for connection, safety, and empowerment as we embark on the journey of parenting together. You will leave this workshop with a better understanding of motherhood and friendships with other new moms. The workshop will start September 8th and be on Thursdays from 12 to 1.30 p.m. You can register on Eventbrite, link to our website and Instagram at lovelink.co, or email us at info at lovelink.co if you want to learn more. Hope to see you there. Men are told that their value is measured in their achievement as opposed to their the quality of their engagement. Right, so it becomes this quick like uh, I can get connection through being admired. All these impressive things I've done. Look how much money I have, or look at how I'm doing, rather than engagement right, and connection. Love Link, your guide to love and sex in all forms. We're your hosts, Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon. Our guests today are clinical psychologists David Gordon and Everyman co-founder and CEO Lucas Crump, who are here to talk to us about male vulnerability, definitions of masculinity, and how to help men open up to intimacy and emotional self-awareness. Well, thank you both for joining us. We're very excited about this topic. Um about talking about male vulnerability and masculinity and it's I feel like it's a topic that doesn't get get enough uh, get enough airtime so can you to start us off can you um, you both work with men in treatment can you give us an overview of of your backgrounds and what kind of work you do sure yeah um, I guess I'll go first yeah, so I'm in private practice. Um, I work with uh, adults um, individually, in, with couples, and in groups. Um, as many as you guys probably know, in training right now, there aren't that many male-identified clinicians. Um, I think I read a statistic recently, it was 80% of people training to be therapists identify as female. Um, so um, because of that, a lot of the clients that are looking to work with a male-identified therapist um, tend to come to me. Um, so my practice is mostly men. Um, I run a men's interpersonal process group, um, and yeah, that's that's where my work is now. Great. My name is Lucas Crump. I am one of the co-founders and CEO of Everyman. Everyman is a men's wellness organization. Um, specifically, we provide men tools, resources, and community to proactively support mental and emotional wellness. Um, you know, through a variety of different offerings that we've developed, um, all based on a, a science-based methodology and curriculum that my co-founder Owen Marcus and Dan Doty have have been working on for um, you know I think collectively like 40 years or something so um, pretty significant um, 
time and experience working with men. Um, my background is um, not in therapy. Um, I mean, in a sense that I'm not a I'm not a trained therapist. Um, I came to this work through really my own experience as a young man uh, growing up in Kansas. Um, you know, when I was younger, my father wasn't around, and there was quite a you know there was abuse my in my family my father had a uh, was bipolar um and i ended up going to an all-boys jesuit school which was kind of my first um exposure to really having all male type events um and then i actually went uh overseas i spent 10 years living and working overseas um and had kind of a journey of of discovering my own you know, kind of the challenges of being away from home and then looking for support and resources and not necessarily finding that in a foreign country and then really having to go on my own exploration of like, what did I need to support me um, in terms of where I was and then ended up moving to New York City and, you know, at some point I, I, I needed it. You know, every man was really like one of the things that I needed most in my life. And, you know, as I dove more into what I needed, it turned out that more and more men also needed this. And I was very lucky to um, cross paths with the other co-founders of every man, Dan Doty, Owen Marcus, and Sasha Lewis. And here we are now. <laughs> How would you describe what the men need in every man? Like, what, what are they looking for and what are they getting there? I think there's an interesting thing where it's like men instinctively, like deep down, they know what they need. It's community, it's connection, it's the sense of feeling heard and um, seen and, and the ability to actually just relax, open up, connect and be themselves. Um, I think they oftentimes don't necessarily even know that that's what they need. Because we, because our culture and our society sends them mixed messages about what they, about what we think they need. It's very prescriptive, um, and it's like deep down they know that they need something. They know that something's not right inside them, and they're sort of out searching for it. And they find every man. And I think that what we've created in terms of how we deliver what we do, and and also the various entry points, makes it accessible for them to find to find out what it is that they do need. We don't tell them that we have something for them. Like we give them a place to discover that for themselves. Okay. And, and David, what about in therapy? What brings men into treatment typically? Cause I imagine a lot of men are reluctant to come in. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly the stereotype. And, and I think there's obviously a, a truth to that. Um, I've, found in my practice that often men come in when they're in crisis as opposed to when they're seeking um, more in their life um, that they can get on by themselves and push through distress um, for quite some time until the signs can't be ignored anymore. So often that looks like um, expressions of the distress through their body. So whether um, you know, symptoms of anxiety, tight chest, panic attacks, whether it's sexual dysfunction, like erectile dysfunction or premature ejaculation, there are things like their body will be screaming to them like, hey, there's something wrong, pay attention here. And that's kind of the cue that 
that they, the more subtle cues that they weren't noticing all along um, can't be ignored anymore. I mean, that, that's kind of the, I would say, the stereotype. The truth is a lot of my practice is full of really sensitive, open guys who are looking for to be vulnerable um, and really just don't have the spaces or the outlets to, to do that in. How, how do you think this um, is different than women who present in therapy? Yeah, so one of the defining virtues of traditional masculine norms is self-sufficiency. Right? Don't be dependent on others. I can do this myself. Um, so I think there's maybe a poll, you know, if you're looking for like a general take on it, that, uh, there, yeah, there's a reluctance to come into the room for men because inherent in coming into therapy is I can't do this on my own. I need help. Um, and, um, yeah, that may be something that our culture has given women permission to do. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would say, yeah, the dependency, the self-sufficiency is, is really a turnoff. Well, the dependency is, is really something scary because growing up, men are taught if you're, if you need, it means you're weak or uh, it's like a signaling that you're less than and can then be maybe excluded from the group. Uh, well, both of you are men, obviously. <laughs> um, I'm curious to hear from both of you what you learned about masculinity growing up. What, what were the norms that in, in, in your cultural environment uh, growing up as, as boys and, and then into men? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, you know, I had, um, I had a difficult relationship with my biological father. As I mentioned, he was bipolar. And so from a very young age, our, our relationship was fractured in terms of the traditional father-son and the, and the safety and sort of like looking up to was, wasn't there for me. Um, you know, I probably looked more to my grandfather, um, who was older, you know, obviously older than my father. Um, you know, and, and I, I feel like the, the idea of masculinity that was given to me was one around, um, it, it, it it's like the collapsing of like masculinity and masculinity and leadership, you know, the ability to be like self-reliant, the ability to be, you know, in the difficult moments, you're the reliable and you're the dependable one. And that would mean, you know, sort of subverting or, or pushing away any type of pain or suffering so that one could then play that role in a difficult moment. Right. Um, you know, I wasn't necessarily taught that like emotions were bad, but the, the, the demonstration of like the actual, like, this is how you, this is how you be as a man in life. Wasn't certainly to be overly emotive, if you will. Um, you know, and, and I think for me, a, a lot of, Beyond that, a lot of the, my own relationship with masculinity was was based on my own exploration and sort of lived experience. You know, like what what worked, what works for me. You know. Yeah, I think I, I had a very different experience because I, I grew up um, in a in a community where I the kind of stereotypical aggressive uh, Neanderthal male was very much rejected. Uh, very. Uh, my father is a psychologist. 
I uh, went to a very progressive temple growing up where if any, and I, you know, through high school and through college, if anything, there is, even if we didn't have the language for it then, that like toxic masculinity was something that was to be shamed. Um, and so I think, if anything, for me, my, my process of learning what it means to be a man, I think was quite confusing because there was mixed messages um, about what is kind of modern masculinity. And I think for me, I actually shied away from getting in touch with my aggression um, for a long time and never really developed um, what it means to have a voice and to, um, if anything, I decided on the, the quite the passive side. Not the only male therapist who, who has come to struggle with this, I think. But um, yeah, so I think it's, if for me, it, it, was, it was quite confusing because there are these competing norms. Um, but there's often kind of this, as things changed, it was kind of more of the same. There was like this competitive peacocking of, well, if I'm an intellectual man, then, you know, there's still a competition for like size and um, signaling to power. It's just what the signals of power were, um, you know, if I could cite Foucault or something rather than, um, you know, being a jock. Um, so, yeah, as things changed, I grew up in a different culture, but uh, maybe still some of the same problems. I think it's I think it's interesting, like what you like. Both David and I sort of represent the 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 opposites. You know, kind of one of the things that we see in every man is like there's it's like there's this polarization. There's like a, a complete lack of of the ability to express anger or assertiveness, right? Or there's another one which is kind of um, overtly anger and not having the ability to tap into the more like calmer, softer, caring side, right? And what I see is that there's a real, um, there's a lack of fluency, there's a lack of uh, fluidity, like an ability to be, to, to operate across that spectrum um, in a way that supports, you know, supports us as men. It's like we either choose to be one or the other, right? Um, and and it, it, it sort of traps us. It doesn't allow us to be fully expressed in who we are as it, as as men. Why do you think that happens? Why why there's this lack of fluency in a lot of men where they sort of they stand up being in a particular kind of role or, or or kind of stuck in a particular way of being where they either can't express their aggression or or feel that they that that's the only way. We're not we're not yeah, no, I mean, we're not taught how to do it. That's one. Um, there's no incentive for us to to do it. Um, you know, if anything, there's a there's a disincentive to do it in our in our current culture. Obviously, things are changing, um, but then at the same time, like we don't, as men, we don't see it as a skill or or something that can be practiced and developed. Like, I, I'm fully convinced that like developing our emotional capacity, developing you know, supporting our our sort of mental and emotional health is something that can actually be practiced and done proactively. Um, but as men, we kind of approach it all of like, oh, cool, like, I'll just read the directions and I'll do that, you know? And it's like, 
No, like that's not how you you don't prepare for a marathon. You don't just like show up to run a marathon and think that you're going to like win the race. You have to train. You have to like practice it. Um, and, and the other piece that I was going to say is like we we also as men have been very much. I mean, David, to your point earlier, like we've been taught, like we operate in this world as if it, it's a zero sum game. Like we as men are always consciously or unconsciously competing with one another. Like David was talking about, it's like he, he's inadvertently competing with another guy to see if he can recite some, you know, medical journal or literature piece or something. And then I inadvertently convert to be like, oh, well, like I had a better, like, you know, stock trade or some like stupid, you know what I mean? Some like stupid thing. And, and we, we approach every, yeah, we approach everything as if it's like a zero sum game as if like, you know, you have to lose so that I can win. And, and what it does is it actually, it, it, it reinforces this singular approach to life and, and reinforces isolationism and sort of stoicism in us as men. Yeah, and I think to that point, Lucas, like, in, well, the two of us need to be careful to not compete with each other, I guess, in here then, right? Um, <laughs> Parallel mm-hmm. process yeah. happening. <laughs> yeah, group therapy comment. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's. And thank you for saying that because it is like I I mm-hmm. inadvertently just because I'm a guy and because that's totally. what it is, you know. <laughs> How does that impact male friendships? This uh, competition. Yeah, as you were talking, Lucas, and I think that links into this question. I was thinking about how because of this competition, it's. Uh, there's an anxiety that your masculinity could always be taken away from you at any point, right? So there's like this, there's this, uh, it's exhausting to have to be on alert to not be demasculated. Um, so how does it affect friendships? Um, well, I think there, there are all, there's so many ways in which um, norms of traditional masculinity interfere with intimacy between men. The, um, don't appear weak, don't show emotion. Um, But for me, I think, and this is where the competition, I think, fits in, is I think men are told that their value is measured in their achievement as opposed to their, the quality of their engagement, right? So it becomes this quick, like, uh, I can get connection through being admired like, look at all these impressive things I've done. Look at, you know, look how much money I have or, or not even look how much I, money I, I don't have and I'm kind of a martyr, right? There, there are all these signals to um, look at how I'm doing rather than engagement, right, and connection. Um, so I think that, that's, that it just leaves a void, it contributes to a void between them. And that seems like a huge paradigm shift because I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about the men that I see me in my office and so many of them come in and they might have anxiety or they have these really concrete issues, but then trying to help them open up their emotional kind of internal world, you really have to get them on board because a lot of men come in and they don't really see or understand the purpose. Like, why would I want to go to pain? Like, why can't I just problem solve and fix it and move forward? So I'm wondering how you help men understand the power of emotion and, and kind of what's the incentive? Like, why would they want to go to a painful place if it doesn't seem to benefit them? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's um, it's a great question. I, I think, um, I, th- I think like what from what I've seen is that when we actually get to experience our emotions, get to actually like emote, right, in the presence of of other men, it it it's freeing, right? Like it's, it's actually just like, oh man. I just got to like take off this like super, you know, this 150 pound backpack and like, and just like be and be okay and feel safe. And I think that there's a physiological response to that. Like our body actually can calm down and like we can actually physically feel the, the sort of stress and anxiety and the tension, you know, kind of roll off our body. Um, which when you, when you, I, I do, it's, it's so interesting because a lot of our work at Everyman is based on, you know, um, what we call emotional physiology, right? Somatic experiencing. And like, you can, you can literally see the shift in a guy's posture, in his facial expression, in the way he carries himself after he's gotten to a place of like being able to experience what he hadn't been able to experience or what he's not sort of experiencing on a day to day. Um, it's, it's, it's really powerful. Um, and then I think inadvertently that then gives permission to other men to want to experience that for themselves and to feel okay with it. Yeah. I was, I was just going to add to that. Like when the conditions are right, um, men seize the opportunity to be vulnerable. Um, and it may take a while, you know, to meet people where they're at in terms of like, you know, yeah, that someone says, you know, treats it very analytically, right? Like, uh, what's the point of feeling pain? I um, just want to, uh, you know, get to the good stuff. Um, there may not be anything you can say that's going to have them bring down their wall. You may just have to park yourself outside, you know, the castle walls and say, like, hey, it's kind of nice out here. Like, and kind of modeling that freedom within yourself to be with your emotions and, uh, you know, but I think the more, if, if it's pushed, uh, it's just met with resistance and then it becomes this, com- like this competition dynamic. And then it's just, there's a stuckness. So like figuring out how to like get in the same corner. Um, yeah, but if someone's not willing, it's, it's, or not ready to at least, it, it could take time. I think it's also, it's so powerful for men to be with male clinicians or be in groups with other men because as a clinician, and I don't know if this has been your experience, Simone, I sometimes find like we eventually get there, right? They, they can, a, male, a man can open up to me be, because, partially because I'm, I'm a woman, but they, it's still hard for them to open up to the men in their life or they might feel they can be more vulnerable with their partner. But it's, it's, there's something about, but I can't have this conversation with my father or my best friend. I'm like, what do you talk, talk about with your best friend? You know, like, what's the conversation you're having? And it's, it's, it, it stays at the surface. It's still, it's like, there's something about the male to male connection that seems important for a lot of men. 
And that was a real issue that Sina and I came up with when we ran a Vietnam veteran group. Oh, my God. At the VA is that it took us a long time. And finally, the men were able to open up to each other, to connect, to share tears, to to comfort one another. And it was like we were kind of reveling in, in us doing such a good job and all this profound work. And then we would ask them, oh, so have you talked... Have you talked to your wife about this? Or have you talked to anyone outside of the group? And it would always be met with, I know, Sina, you worked with them longer, so maybe it changed, but it'd be like, oh, I would never. I only talk about it within this group, which is something actually I'm curious about every man or maybe David or about the groups that you run with men is how much does the work that they do, the vulnerability that they get to in the group translate to their, to their outside world? Yeah, go ahead, David. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's obviously the hope. Um, and yeah, I mean, I can think of right now in the same group, one guy who is really pushing things with his family and like, hey, let's have these conversations. I've been sitting on this stuff for 30 plus years and, you know, um, I'm going to I'm going to deal with how uncomfortable this is and and go for it. And, and it's amazing. And then there's another guy in the group who we've been struggling this, you know, for many months now, and he's, every week he comes in and it's like, nope, didn't say it, didn't say it to my dad, you know, couldn't say I love you to my dad. Um, and we're like, come on, you can do it. And, and but, um, so, some yes, some no. But I also, I'm pretty, I was at the Brooklyn VA for externship and internship as well, and I'm, I'm kind of curious if we ran the same group, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I know there are several. several we of we those started. Groups, but, yeah. We started the group that we ran. We started yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. It was an amazing experience, but it's true. Was it that that dynamic of of them keeping it in the group that didn't that didn't change? No. Um, right. But they were, you know, they were in their sixties and they had lived their entire life not sharing with others. So it was a big step just to be able to contact one another. I think for some guys who struggle to translate the, the gains from group outside, there, there are a couple things. There's, one is there's explicit permission in the group to be vulnerable. It's actually like that's the thing everyone's there to do. So if, you, if you're not vulnerable, you're actually not doing the, uh, the thing everyone kind of wants. So, um, but if you've, so I think there are, like, there are two reasons, though, outside the group that make it hard. One is there, there can be mixed signals from people in men's lives about being vulnerable. There can be kind of these kind of, I don't know, codependent or these uh, kind of perverse incentives, right? People say they want the man to be vulnerable, but then when they do, it's like, well, where's this uh, strong kind of grit that I was attracted to? Um, and also, there's another piece for like the Vietnam vets um, in thinking about time. Like, if you know, in your you're in your 70s, and then you do something you had never done in your life, um, or even someone younger, it can bring in a lot of painful emotions about, wow, this hasn't like, but I could have had this all along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a sense of remorse. I see that. Yeah. I see that a lot in, in every man. Um, there's, there's kind of like three distinct audiences that we, we kind of, there's like three categories, if you will. And then I, I, I often see that from the older men that, that come in, there's a sense of remorse around, wow, like, I, I wish I would have done. That. I mean, there's, there's joy, 
but there's also sadness because there's a reflection on relationships that, that were fractured or, or, you know, sort of opportunities that were passed. Um, you know, and I think from a group's perspective, from an, from an everyman, uh, standpoint, um, everyman groups are peer led. They follow a curriculum that, that we've developed, um, and a set of agreements. Um, and we, we, you know, we vet the men and then we, we organize them and, and put them into groups and we provide them the tools and resources, but, and, but the group is ultimately peer led. And so there's a sense of there's, there's like this, this co-creation. So everybody feels the same amount of responsibility and commitment to the group. Um, and what the group does is it, is it provides them a space to actually practice a way of being that they're not normally necessarily doing in their everyday lives. Right. And so it's like, I can actually practice communicating from this place or, or, um, speaking about what's going on in my life and I can start to develop that muscle of, of emotional expression of finding a voice and actually speaking up. And, and then I have this group that, that ultimately supports me and holds me accountable. And then I can come back to and sort of share the, the benefit of that. Um, and I think it, it's, it's an interesting intermediary step before, you know, like, it's like you could go from sort of one-on-one therapy or, or group therapy and then sort of go immediately into your, your, like your everyday life. And that could be very jarring. So I think that there's this like interim step of like, Hey, like practice in this, in this gym for a bit and, and see, and try it on before you like, cause I do see often, like one of the things that I, I have seen is like, there's, there's like, guys have like waited so long and then they find it and it's like, Oh my God, that feels so good. Like I totally want to be this way. And then it's like, they get out into real life. It's like, it's like giving a 16 year old, like a Ferrari, (laughs) you know? And you're like, Oh, like, (laughs) you know, slow down. And like, (laughs) like, um, so, you know, you need to practice. You know, what's really painful that I've seen is when men are in therapy and they've really kind of deepened and and feel more connected to themselves and are able to share their emotions and then turn to their wives who've never seen this in them. And all of a sudden there's a lot of feelings and they're expressive. And the wives who have been maybe even asking for this for a long time, it's like too much and they knock it down or they somehow criticize or attack. And I'm wondering if that's come up in your work and, and how you... How you address? Well, I mean, that's such a good. Like, I have, I have my sort of what I think, but like, I mean, I feel like you guys are the experts. I, I like, I'd love to hear from from David and you all, like, why that is. I don't know. I, I, I can share like, a personal example, actually. Although uh, disclosure of the therapist is, is kind of a <laughs> is a, an odd thing, but uh, I'll, I'll be it. vulnerable. Yeah, one of my early uh, relationships on um, maybe my first real long-term romantic relationship <clears throat> I had uh, one of my first panic attacks um, and after then the relationship was never the same and I didn't really have the language or the maturity to kind of have a conversation with her during that time to kind of figure out what was going on but after that moment uh, things went downhill and we broke up and I don't know if I ever figured out what about that um, my panic attack was, but there, I think there, she saw me in a very different light after that. Like I was, um, 
I was in a in that state of terror. I was um, I was like needy or help like uh, I was weak or somehow um, unreachable um, and and not this like fearless uh, backpacking uh, leader guy that I you know maybe she thought I was. Um, so I think there was like a major shift in how she experienced me uh, being in that state of vulnerability. Um, I don't know if I have other language for it now. I mean, I think about how, you know, women, as women, we're brought up in the same culture as men. And so we, we're also socialized in some ways to think about men, you know, have the expectation that men should be strong and, uh, you know, uh, confident with high self-esteem. And I think for some women, it can be a real dilemma because they both want a vulnerable partner, like Simone was saying, and then they also want a confident and strong partner and they feel like those things are maybe mutually exclusive or they can't quite reconcile the two. Um, <clears throat> so I think there's also something about women also needing to uh, process more how they can be vulnerable with men and receive male vulnerability because uh, it does seem like that that's a dilemma. I, I, I definitely and I totally I, I, I agree with both points and you know, one of my observations is, is, is that sort of younger, I, I think it's across the spectrum, but like re relationships that sort of have developed earlier on, you know, when a guy is sort of maturing and really becoming and finding out who he is, you know, that relationship is kind of built on one way of being. And then as that, as that individual grows and matures, and sort of realize that, well, maybe that way of being isn't necessarily serving me, or maybe I need to, open, like, you know, that sort of acute pain that may exist, like, I need to change that. But that the foundation of that relationship isn't built on that level of, of vulnerability, and so it can be very off-putting. Like, how does a woman respond to that, or, or, or a man, you know, depending on the relationship, how do... How does, how does a partner respond to that when the person that they entered the relationship with is demonstrating, and I think to David's point, like characteristics or vulnerabilities that weren't necessarily present when we started the relationship? Um, you know, and if you don't have the support to process that, it can certainly be, it can be scary. You know, it can be off-putting. It, it can be jarring. Yeah, as we were talking, it got me thinking, like, uh, like, I was thinking that the the stoic man may provide like a containing function um, that when there's like this vulnerable other guy who shows up, it may feel like the containment is gone, like the other one is having to contain, um, which may be really uh, dis like just disruptive or uh, confusing. But yeah, we need to figure out a way for things so we can contain each other and not have to be it like have to either be stoic to be containing or uh be you know a puddle and i imagine so unfamiliar because so many of us women had fathers who are emotionally very stoic or reserved and so even if we want a man to be open and vulnerable it can also right be really dysregulating but also disorienting unfamiliar and I also think that we give sometimes too much credit for women to being emotionally expressive and vulnerable and, and kind of accessing it very easily. Because I, I think women 
tend to have a better language. They can talk about emotions. But I think we live in a very affect-phobic culture. I think all of us struggle to really actually feel our emotions. Um, so sometimes I think there's this unfair kind of blame that, okay, men, men can't communicate their feelings and women can, when in fact, maybe women can communicate them better, but not necessarily in a vulnerable way. I think that's really difficult for everyone. Uh, I, I mean, I, I totally agree. I think that, I, I, I think, <laughs> you know, we are as a, I believe that as a culture, we are feeling less, right? And I don't know, I mean, that, that that's from a variety of different external forces, whether it's media, whether it's how we connect and communicate, but like, you know, alexithymia, which is this kind of um, deterioration of our emotional capacity is is on the rise, you know, especially within men, like literally this gradual sort of like numbing of our feeling and, and reducing of the, the actual vocabulary that we use to express how, how we are feeling as, as humans. Um, I don't necessarily, I mean, it's more prevalent in men, but that's all, that's a, that's a human issue, right? That's a, that's a, that's a human problem. Um, and, and, you know, I think that, to the relationship point, there is a, there is like a bigger, um, component of this is just like how we have conditioned men in relationships. Like we, you know, if we look at just hit like public figures, social figures, like media, like there's no celebration of like the vulnerable guy, right? Like, like, you know, James Dean is the sex symbol. You know what I mean? Like, not Clint Eastwood, right? Like, not like, you know, a, a emotionally fluid kind of sappy guy. Like, he, you know, he's not on, like, People magazine, you know? <laughs> and so how do we start to, like, change that? And, and it goes, like, I, I feel like it's it's in the commercials that we watch. It's in the television shows that we watch. It's in the media that we consume. And it's like, there's a massive shift in terms of just socializing our acceptance for emotion and, and demonstrating our emotions publicly, like, and then being rewarded for it or incentivized to do it more like that. That I think is what starts to shift the, the entire paradigm around this. Uh, situation, and I think it's even like another step, even more insidious than just the James Dean version, right? Because then there's mm -hmm. also like your '90s uh, high school uh, comedy thing, where obviously the jock is hated, right? But right. so like the sensitive guy is is like the hero, but it's like a very controlled performative <laughs> sensitivity. It's not like raw, like my guts are being poured out. So that's um, maybe that's a step better, but I think we there needs to be a lot more room. Right? That's such a great point. I, I also, you know, if you take that further, like one of the, I think the anger, men can very easily default to anger, right? It's one of these ways that we can express sadness. It's there's like it, it's it's a it's a tool that we've sharpened to express a lot of different emotions, but we've created a a belief around the expression of anger, which actually limits our ability as men to express anger safely, right? Like if I get angry, I'm, I'm immediately judged. I'm immediately feared. Like I don't feel safe. And, and in, in some contexts that is absolutely unequivocally correct. 
But oftentimes I see a lot of men that just don't have a place to express anger. And really that anger is sadness. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like what happens when, when pain isn't expressed, sadness, hurt, whatever it is, what happens to that pain? How does it, so one way is it gets expressed through anger. Are there other ways it can also get expressed? I mean, one of our big beliefs is what David talked about earlier is just like the, the actual physical mani- manifestation of repressed emotion. Like we need to accept, you know, we need to sort of normalize the, 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 the truth that is like mind, body, spirit, right? Like, like our emotional body has an ability to impact our physical body and our mental body. So when we like disassociate and compartmentalize and stuff away our emotions and don't process and express them over time, that will actually show up in our physical body through some of the ailments that David talked about earlier. It's like, and it's actually a beautiful thing because it's like now as a man, I can start to, I can see how this intangible thing, which is my emotions can actually tangibly impact my body. And so if I change that, I can start to like, wow, there's an incentive for me to, to be more emotive because I can see the change in my body. And guys are very like, like they want, like I go to the gym, I lift a lot of weights. Like I want to see my muscles get bigger. Like show me, look in the mirror, you know? And it's like, Hey, you know, if there's a real incentive for us to, to actually benefit from not compartmentalizing and not disassociating from our emotions, then I think it makes it more attractive for men to, to actually emote. Yeah, I, th- I think there's this process by which um, first the pain is known, like, ouch, that hurts, but then there's this really um, insidious process by which men or boys, uh, because they're not given the permission to ex- to emote, right, the, uh, you know, the boys are told, like, why are you crying, not, like, why are you crying? Um, that that it becomes too painful to feel the pain and not have a, you know a space to express it. That they there's like a process by which they the boys start to no longer be aware of the pain. It's a, like this dissociation of like there's uh, something wrong here. Like I'm just not going to even notice it. And then over time, I think boys become men. They they live with this felt experience that there's something wrong, but they don't have the language for it, and they don't have the, they just don't have the awareness, and that can play out like in children as like maybe acting out and uh, aggressive play, um, you know, maybe you know, inattention in the classroom, right? Or as adults, it could be like substance use, right? Like, uh, the, you know, it, this, there's, I'm overwhelmed, I need to, like, modulate my affect, bring it down, um, impulsivity, or, like, you know, with a lot of the men in my practices, these destructive relational patterns, right? So when it's, like, dissociated out from awareness, it wreaks havoc on, in these men's lives because it's so far out of our awareness. And that's what therapy becomes, you know, finding a way of naming this ineffable sense of what's wrong.
we invite you to spend the next few moments to just listen. Brought to you by Nan, spelled N-O-N, the sound meditation app for iPhone, where no two sessions are alike. I also see a lot of workaholism as a form of avoidance, maybe because we live in New York, but that men who work all the time and never have any other areas of, the, of their life that they invest in, it's usually a red flag. One of the, one of the core sort of components of, of, you know, kind of the everyman method is, is a, is a tool that we use. We call it, we call it the rock formula. And then like the first thing is actually relax, like actually slow down and experience what you're experiencing. Like be, be present to this moment right now, because oftentimes we're sort of not present distracting ourselves from the present moment through work or through relationship. It's like, it's this way of avoidance because if we actually slow down and felt what we were feeling, we may not want to be, we may not want to sit with that, right? It's uncomfortable. Um, so how do we actually like slow down and just like be present with what we're feeling and be comfortable with that? It's, it can be very scary. What advice do you have about expressing anger? Um, because sometimes anger, right, if, you, if, if we can get to it, is sadness, right? And then it's like, can you communicate the sadness directly? Can you talk about what's underneath the anger? But sometimes anger is because something happened to be angry about and there's some injustice. Or how, do you, how do you talk to men about expressing their anger? I run two groups. One is a men's interpersonal process group. One is... A non-gender specific group um, and yeah so maybe I'll back up one second to think about how in one way I hold anger um, actually maybe this this is actually a Paul Rindrisism so maybe you you guys may uh, supervisor yeah is <laughs> we that <love> like Paul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that like there's a is there's a tight relationship between anger and anxiety Right, uh, Paul actually told me, and this could be completely made up. I I don't know. Is that the root word in Latin for anger and anxiety are both the same? It's like agre, which means to choke. Um, which again, I have no idea if this is true or not. But <laughs> this is this is what I was told. I'm gonna go with it, and I'm gonna go with it because it helps me explain my thinking. Um, is that and when we're anxious, it feels like we're being choked. And when we're angry, we want to choke the other person. And so I think anger is, is a very important and healthy thing when we're feeling choked, when we're feeling like stuck in a corner. Like if we're trapped in a corner 
anger is a really useful tool to like back the other person up so we can get freed. But um, we're not always backed into a corner, even if we feel emotionally stifled and backed into a corner. And so, you know, one way I think about anger in the practice is getting to really slowing down and noticing what are the confluence of emotions that are leading us to feeling like we're being trapped. And once maybe we notice there isn't really that wall behind us, it kind of frees up how to be like assertively address what it feels like the problem is. Um, um, yeah. So yeah, in group, for example, um, you know, how do I keep, I'll try to keep it as mixed. I'll mix some people up to make it seem like not a real person. So it actually isn't a, a real person. Um, you know, there's one person in the group who doesn't want to, who says these topics in my life are off limits. I will not talk about my abuse. You know, I will not talk about um, a painful relationship. And other people in the group, you know, really respect that, but also at some point feel like they don't know how to help him. It's like, uh, well, what are you doing here if you don't want to share what's so hard? So, for example, one person in the group talked in an individual session about how he felt very frustrated by this person, like angry at them, like, why are they wasting my time, um, you know, taking up space, but like, it's such a tease to say, you know, I'm here, but I won't talk. Um, and so what we, what we kind of came to is finding the language of saying like, why it's hard for them, like, it's like, I feel like I'm putting in the work and I feel like you're, when you don't, when you're not vulnerable, it feels like I'm spilling my guts and, and you're not stepping up to kind of be in this with me. So it kind of shifted the anger from anger to um, need or kind of sadness. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that really answered the, your question, but. But it sounds like so much of it is how you frame things to sort of soften the person. When they're in a protective stance, yeah. they don't want to share. And if you're asking and you're poking, they're going to get angrier and more closed off. But when someone expresses that distance or that sadness or that wish, it kind of like l starts to lower some of those boundaries. It's, it's such an interesting when you bring up boundaries, because one thing that, that I see very consistently is like the the core wound that that leads to anger is because a boundary has been violated in, in, in at some point in a, in a in a man's life or in his childhood experience whatever it means like at some point a boundary that was established was violated and that man didn't have the 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 space the um ability to actually stand up and say no no i i this is not okay right and when we when we don't get to actually have that experience the 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 emotion that the, the anger that comes up in our body and is not actually expressed through through actually saying no gets repressed well it seems like the thing that the 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 differentiator between anger just you know like the sort of spewing of anger right as a defensive thing um and 
and saying uh, and being assertive around boundaries and saying no and things like that. Like the the no and the assertiveness is vulnerable. The other the the other kind of the anger isn't vulnerable. That's a, it's like an attack. And the other, but the assertiveness and and the, the strength in that that's. Um, and, and communicating needs is, is the vulnerability. Right. And if, and if that, if that, if you weren't able to, to say no in that moment, then, then that sort of pattern or behavior continues to come up. Like it manifests itself in different ways. And so it's this repetitive pattern. So it's like, you know, you're just like death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Over time, if you just don't ever get to actually stand up and create the boundaries that you want, like you're just going to get angry. So I feel like we could probably talk about this topic forever. Um, it's been so interesting, and I feel like I still have questions left, but we do need to wrap it up. So I, I'm wondering, one of the, the things we like to ask our our guests is about advice for our listeners. And I'm wondering if, if the two of you had a piece of advice that you would give to men who struggle to open up. Yeah, I, I've been kind of chewing on this idea of modern masculinity and I still don't have all the language around it because I don't know but I've been chewing on this idea of like oh what is kind of empowered masculinity I know obviously masculinity has is this you know there's um you know this the toxic masculinity that has been around is associated with power um, and we live in a patriarchy, so there's clearly power. But so I'm, I don't know if I found the right word. I toyed with the idea of like fierce masculinity, but that may feel a little corny to me. So I'm trying to figure it out. But there's something where where there there needs to be room for men to be authentically into the stuff they they enjoy. Like I think about we're allowed to talk about sports when we hang out. But not as a way of avoiding, but not to avoid talking about important stuff, but because it's like a passion, right? Or, you know, um, so I think that the key in that for me is um, moving from, you know, the real like man up thing to do would be to stop avoiding appearing in a in a way, right, either weak or vulnerable, right? It actually avoidance is, is a pretty like weak thing to do. And we need to take responsibility for ourselves and really be be leaders by by being in touch with our passions. So well, I guess what is my advice is like, uh, you think you're being such a tough guy, but you're, you're really not. Like vulnerability is a way of taking responsibility for, for ourselves and uh, it's kind of like grow up. Mm. Advice. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. I, I love that, David. Because um, it is. There's a certain level of... of like there's strength in actually owning all the parts of ourselves. And I think that that's like, you know, that's, that's a big part of what we do and what we create is a space at, at every man for, for every man to show up wherever he's at on his journey and to slow down and actually be, actually have a chance to practice being 
authentic with, with who he is, whatever that looks like, you know, like, like, it's like, Hey, just take a risk. You know, like my advice to guys is like, take a risk, like take a risk, no matter how big or small and, and, and don't sort of compare that risk to another risk. Cause there's, there is no comparison, but take a risk being more authentic with how you're feeling and, and express that like whatever it is, you know, it's express joy, express anger, express gratitude, but just express it and take a risk in, in sharing that with somebody that you care about. Um, and in that moment, try to feel it, try to like, actually like res- just be present to what that experience is like. Um, cause I, I think it's not as scary as men think it is. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, I, I read some thing that was like, you know, express men expressing their emotions is like the equivalent, to, like, it's like, that is the same as like jumping off a bridge. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? It's like, it, mm-hmm. it, it, in our mind, like that, you know, like our, our, like our, like our physical response doesn't know the difference, right? We feel the same way in our body around that. And it's like, just, just leap, man. It's so freeing. That's great advice. And, and how can each of you be reached? If people are interested in getting in touch with you or getting in touch with every man. Yeah, I guess I can go ahead. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't have many big projects going on. I, I just have a private practice and a family um, and just trying to survive <laughs> quarantine uh, and the world seemingly falling apart. So uh, you can go- Google my name. Uh, Sounds David. like a good project. <laughs> yeah, staying alive right now feels kind of like just enough the to biggest me. One. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Surviving. yeah, you could. Yeah, survival is my is the project I'm working on right now. Um, <laughs> You're doing well. <laughs> yeah. So far, so good. So far, so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can just Google my name, David Gordon, Side uh, D. Um, I have a couple platforms online. You could you could reach out. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, just everyman.com, E-V-R-Y-M-A-N, just one E. Um, every Tuesday we have a global call that guys can sign up for and participate in. And then every day we actually run, um, online, uh, what we call drop-in groups that are facilitated. It's just 60 minutes, gives guys a chance to just be present and feel what that's like. Um, you know, and then we help guys join groups. We have a, a, a membership offering, which gets guys into the, the Everyman community. And, you know, you can just search for Everyman and we'll, we'll be there oh, for thank you. Thank you great. so much. It's been thank lovely you so to have much. you on. Thank you, guys. This was great. Yeah. Hopefully we can have you on again sometime. We have, sure we'll have more questions. Yeah, we'll love that. Enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To stay in touch with us, sign up for our quarterly newsletter at lovelink.co, where we share our favorite articles and resources about love, sex, and relationships. Also, in future episodes, we plan on answering listener questions. So if you'd like your questions featured on our show, send us a voice memo using the Anchor app or send it directly to our email, info at lovelink.co. 
And if you have a second, truly, the best way you can help support us is to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Just scroll to the bottom of the Loveling show page and let us know what you think. We thank you all again so much for listening. We're truly touched you take the time out of your busy schedule for us. Until next time. Mm-hmm.